0: We believe everyone should have equal rights and equal opportunity, but that doesn't mean we're going to get equal outcomes. So if we accept that there is an inevitable contradiction that modern society, modern Western democracies seem to be about the idea that we should have equal rights before the law, that we should have equal opportunities to thrive, to flourish, that all suggests that equality is very important. But we've seen what happens with attempts at communism that trying to get equal outcomes diminishes humans.
1: I'm here this morning with David Olney. How are you, David? Very well, thank you, Tim. That's good to hear, mate. I've been thinking a lot recently looking into my career and all the effort that I'm putting in to try and get into a position that I want to be in, should I be judged based on my merit? Should I be judged based on the quality of work that I'm putting out? Should I be judged on, you know, uh, who I know? Because that's certainly in media, the career I'm trying to pursue, it seems to be more about who you know rather than what you can actually do because I know plenty of people that are less skilled than me further up the chain or more skilled than me down down the chain.
0: Or further down the uh, black hole. Down the,
1: uh, under, yeah, under me in the ladder, let's say. Yeah. Um, in terms of careers, so what do we think about meritocracy? Um, on the basis that should we define humans by their ability to do something, as opposed to perhaps their, you know, uh, social worth or.
0: Let's start with sort of where the world seems to be at at the moment, and that mm. is we believe everyone should have equal rights. An equal opportunity hmm. but that doesn't mean we're going to get equal outcomes
1: yes equity so, i guess yeah
0: so if we accept that there is an inevitable contradiction that it's about well modern society modern western democracies seem to be about the idea that we should have equal rights before the law that we should have equal opportunities to thrive to flourish that all suggests that equality is very important but We've seen what happens with attempts at communism, that trying to get equal outcomes Uh diminishes humans. Now, for all those Marxists out there who are now yelling and screaming, David, don't pick on Marxism. We haven't (laughs) tried it properly. Well, no, we haven't tried it properly. But we've tried it in devastated countries for generations. Mm. So I think what we can safely say is that if we're going to talk about meritocracy, it needs to be in terms of on this spectrum of at one end the desire for equality of rights and equality of opportunity, mm. but at the other end accepting that we don't get equal outcomes, that different people with different experience, different wants, different needs, different abilities will end up in different places and may be very happy in the place they're in if they felt that they were treated fairly. So we have you know, so many historical examples where systems say, if you conform to our system, you get a prize. So if we go back to ancient Rome, you could come from any of the newly taken provinces that had just been put into the empire, you could volunteer for the Roman legions, you could do your 30 years, and at the end of the 30 years, you would get your citizenship somewhere at the opposite end of the empire so that you would be committed to keeping the empire alive because without the empire you'd be in the badlands with no support or friends. Uh Now, is that a meritocratic system in as much as any person could try and, well, any male, could try and join the legion, mm. do their 30 years and in doing so become a citizen, well, relative to the rest of the world in that period, that was highly meritocratic. So merit is going to be related to and in proportion to the nature of the society in which it's measured. Mm. If we look at you know Plato's guardian class, you know, the guardian class in his writing were meant to be these amazingly disciplined people who would get their roles and be promoted on the basis of the merit. That they had the merit to be the people who could guard society, protect the civilization, look after cultural norms, be the front line of the military, be the front line to guarantee the continued existence of the state. So is there meritocracy within the guardian class? It appears so. Do they look potentially like a prototypical fascist model? Mm. Yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So we have a problem that we can have meritocracy in different systems. So we've got to balance what kind of meritocracy we have with what kind of system we have. So if we look at our current system, let's look at democratic modern Australia. We've had very meritocratic times where university was very affordable, vocational education was very affordable. There were jobs and opportunities going for most people who applied themselves. Are we still in that situation? Probably not. Now, we avoided the worst of the GFC. That was awesome. Mm. That was thanks to predominantly Lindsay Tanner being an incredibly bright human being and swaying the Labor Cabinet to pour billions of dollars into keeping the Australian economy upright. Mm. We had a banking industry that went from zero to hero, not Mm. because it did anything, but because the settings Paul Keating had put in place as treasurer meant our banks weren't leveraged to the point of destruction. So we had a very meritocratic system. It looked like things were going well, but as things get economically harder in the world, what we see now is that the quality of your work, the balance between that and the social network you either already have or can put in place, there's now a juggling act between merit and... And social network and that this is probably the spectrum that humans have been on forever you know, what does our society value at a given moment more merit or more social network if we look at you know th- the worst aristocratic systems it was all social network you know it was all birth class everything was defined by where you started and who you know you were related to mm. At the other end is supposed you know, total meritocracy. Mm. Anyone who's able gets the opportunity. No society's probably ever really been there. But I think we'd like to be closer to that than we would to it being all about social network. So how are you feeling at the moment as you're know, becoming a young professional? Mm. Where are you feeling that you're sitting on the ladder at the moment? Are you feeling that it's a little less than half merit and a little more than half social network and that that's grating a bit?
1: I would probably say that's about maybe yeah, 60-40 is yeah. possibly where it sits. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it would be nicer if it was sixty percent merit, forty percent social network. Definitely. Whereas at the moment it's starting to feel, you know, sixty percent social network, forty percent meritocracy.
1: I think there is something to be said that being personable and the social like the social network isn't actually that unfair. I think it performs not necessarily an evolutionary role, but let's say that it appeals to a function of us as humans that isn't totally unfair between, the, between different no. people. And
0: this is why we're looking for a balance on the spectrum. Mm. Because if we look, ideally, what we want is the person with the merit who also can effectively fit in the society Mm. so that society runs well and things get done well. That's our win-win position. Mm. So we always want to be somewhere a little bit either side of this. And that's a a difficult balancing point to reach because it's very easy when things get more difficult to become more tribal, Mm. to go, I want people around me I trust. I want people who I know will behave well Mm. because I know someone who knows them so the harder things are the harder it is to then deal with merit but then we have situations where this gets turned on its head so in most modern professional militaries they are incredibly meritocratic the only way you will get promotion is to show you have the ability to do the next most complicated job Mm. and you will only be invested in if they've got a really good sense you can do it and continue to look after you know the tribe the military And the purpose of the military tribe is to protect its society. So there we have this incredible emphasis on merit, Mm. but in the context of protecting society as a whole. And the militaries don't have a reason to exist without that greater purpose. Mm. So we see even in situations where within the institution, the organization, merit is by far the most powerful. If you are an officer's child, and you want to become an officer, the likelihood is you understand it better because you've experienced parts of it your whole life. But once you're in the system, you're going to be judged at every level by people at the next level going, are you suitable to go up one level? (laughs) Immaterial of who dad was or who mum was. So in very narrow circumstances, it it appears we can go to the point of merit probably being more than 60%, maybe being 65 70%. Mm. But that's because it's a specific role that can be defined very definitely, and it's not necessarily representing all of society. It's representing a part of society who are engaged in this role.
1: Is that because to be in those like in military positions, you would have already been screened enough that they don't necessarily have to put any weight on like a social value, let's say. Precisely, because in an interview situation, maybe the the progression away from you know the majority of meritocracy has been that the interview process for jobs has really found has been found to be very uh, important so that you know if if you look on paper it might seem you know you have five different applicants you look on paper one of them might be the perfect applicant for whatever job and that's you know your meritocracy element of hiring someone but then you go through the interview process and someone who's maybe less qualified but interviews better gets the job precisely and mm. this is this is the problem of any broad
0: system mm. so promotion board within the military has so many guidelines to make it about do you meet all the core competencies for the next level mm. and you are judged by people you don't know mm. who look at you knowing that you are not going to go in their unit you're going to go somewhere else it's a deliberate policy of assessing capacity but you know, strangers looking at someone they may know of generally but they're not picking you to be promoted to be their underling. Mm. They're not picking you to fit their specific team. They're picking you to be at the level, and that's a very different thing. And this is where we have to go back to the social because, you know, again, listeners, have a think back to job interviews Have you've done. Have you ever done one where in the first third of the interview all the technical stuff's out of the way and by the last two thirds you're finding out about each other's families and pets? <laughs> and you're thinking... They don't care about my technical skills, what's going on. I must have screwed this up monumentally. Mm. And yet they look happily. And you walk out of there and then get offered the job yeah. because the technical stuff was out of the way. The technical stuff was in your CV. It was in your cover letter. Mm. You were already in meritocratic terms appropriate by the time you got to the interview. The interview wasn't about your technical appropriateness for the job. It was about your social fit. And this is a really important thing for uni students, you know, who are worrying about the end of uni and going for grad positions to remember. If you make it to interview, you are already in meritocratic terms suitable. They wouldn't interview you otherwise. Mm. Interview is far more about fit. So what we need to remember when we, you know, it goes wrong and we don't get the job, it's not that we weren't competent, because that's not what they were assessing in the interview. Mm. More likely than not The competence had been decided before the interview Mm -hmm. and was probably, if there were any questions, it was not, are you competent, but how highly competent are you? Oh, we've worked out you're highly competent in the first three to four minutes of the interview. Right, now let's get on, would you fit the team? Mm. So you need to accept that you you should work into an interview fairly confident that you are already deemed competent. You might be able to impress people a bit more that you're highly competent, but you can't do much about whether you do or don't fit their team because you don't know what their team's like. It could be that from meeting the people you're going to work with, you realise you don't want to be a part of that team (laughs) and you're glad you're not offered the job. So interviews can go two ways in the sense that you've got the competence, now let's find out if you fit the society. If you fit the society awesome you want it desperately you'll be very sad if you don't get it but if you get interviewed by members of the team and realize they're actually a bunch of self-absorbed (laughs) so-and-so's fixated on money to the exclusion of any social good social justice or connectedness within the office maybe you dodged a bullet
1: so is that fair look from the perspective of what happens when you don't fit in with the society like how how, do you, how is that repairable or is yeah? It just... and this
0: is where we get into the really big issue of what meritocracy is, mm. because it's all well and good if you're somewhere near the midpoint of being meritocratic enough and fitting socially, but from my perspective, being blind now we're in a society that cares that disabled people are given chances to do reasonably well, and that's an awesome thing that our society wants to. Make sure that difference is valued. Mm. Now it doesn't always get it right, but it consistently tries. Yeah? Let's look back hundred years ago, despite how capable I am, a hundred years ago, I would have been in some philanthropic organization for the blind weaving baskets
1: <laughs>
0: and probably drinking heavily to cope. <laughs> Instead, I'm teaching in a university and doing consultancy. Mm. That's how much our society's improved. That's how much we genuinely want to recognize the merit of the person even though they're different. But this is a constant challenge. Look at the battles for women in the last 40 years mm. to be seen as equal in the workplace. Look at the battles for disabled people that are still ongoing. Look at the battles for you know minorities. Look at the battles still for indigenous people mm. to find their place of being recognized as equally valuable. And this is this problem because we're balancing merit and ability to fit within the society in question. When we're not even sure what our society is, and our society's identity is, we need to encourage goodwill towards difference broadly. But that doesn't mean we'll get perfect outcomes. It just means we'll get better outcomes than if we're not trying. And that that's very frustrating, because you. Here I am, I love teaching at uni, I love being a consultant, but you know, look at Adelaide University. You ever met any other disabled lecturers than me?
1: <laughs> no. <laughs> you
0: know, is there a lecture theatre in the university where the technology in the front of the room would be accessible if the lecturer is in the wheelchair? Uh, no. And it's, this is not uh, having a go at Adelaide Uni. No. We're no, no. using the example we know. Yeah. But there is not a lecture theatre in the uni that is accessible for me mm. because i have done... Nothing to make it accessible. Now, they will spend the money so someone can come and press the buttons for me on the touchscreen. Thank you. That's awesome. But that's the way around the problem. Mm. That's what our society does. It doesn't have a perfect balance between we want a value difference and setting everything up to work perfectly first try. But it tries hard to make it work. So the uni is a wonderful microcosm of the macrocosm of society. Mm. Mm. You know, it wants to value diversity, even if it has to do it in a roundabout way of, uh, David needs someone to be a button pusher. <laughs> Who's going to be chief button pusher? I refer to them as chief technical officer.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so in that situation, is that like a, is that a positive, is that a positive discrimination? Not that I want, like, I don't want to call it that way, that I guess, because generally in our society it has negative connotations, but i would argue that if they deliberately
0: tried to hire me because i'm blind uh, that's positive discrimination yes, yes i would think again this is something we could try and define mm. because i'm not 100 percent sure on the definition either what i would argue is that the uni actually went forward with being meritocratic mm. who do we want teaching complex problem solving yes who do we want teaching strategic culture and unconventional conflict david mm. oh technology is not accessible what do we do get him a person yeah So to my mind, positive discrimination is when you actively seek to redress the balance in your hiring, Mm. whereas what we're seeing here is I think something closer to what I would hope is what meritocracy will become in our society long term. Mm. Let's get someone good to do this. Who's a good person? Hey, David is. Right. He can't see to press the buttons on the touchscreen. screen. Right. Let's get someone to press the buttons. That—that mm-hmm. That is, I think, how I want meritocracy to work, that there is no thought about what niche someone would fill. There is only through meritocratic hiring they're picking good people and those good people happen to be diverse. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. again, we can't use the union here because I don't know how broad the diversity is. Now we need to go out to society and go, do we think we see enough diversity around us? Mm. Are we seeing the balance of merit being recognised? and adaptations being put in place to make sure we have more diversity, that we're balancing meritocracy, society, and the need for diversity to be recognised and valued. So what we're saying here is there's three things on this spectrum. There's meritocracy, Mm. society, and the need to value and represent diversity. Mm. So, I don't know, how do you have a spectrum with three points? (laughs) We've kind of now got a plane with three points. Mm. And any decision is between these three points somewhere in and on the triangle.
1: Mm,
0: mm. Now that's getting pretty complicated. Yeah. The visual imagery makes it a lot easier. You know, if we go, David at the university, meritocratic, yep, near that end. Mm -hmm. Socially, yep, he can fit in society pretty well except for being blind. Are we showing diversity in doing it? Mm. Tick. So maybe on this triangle of these three points, I would tick somewhere near the middle
1: Mm. where all three things have been balanced. So, what do you do when you're part of a majority? So, I'm not disabled. I'm a I, my identifiers are particularly common, right? So, I'm you know heterosexual, white male <laughs> in an Australian society. I have I have no, let's say, differences going for me. How do I tick the diversity box? That's you know that if we're going to assess it on that plane.
0: Now we get into a, an interesting debate in Australia. Australia loves to use the word, we're a tolerant country.
1: <laughs>
0: I hate the word yeah, tolerant. It's a crap word. <laughs> Tolerance suggests I'll tolerate you if you sit over there and don't talk.
1: Yeah, it's, it, it has negative connotations. That comes from, And yet we yeah.
0: use it to death at federal, state level in terms of NGOs. We're the tolerant country. Mm. No, we're not the tolerant country. We're better than that. Mm. The fact that I'm teaching in a university and consulting for major companies, units in defence, government departments. That's not tolerance. That's engaging with diversity. Mm. So we somehow need to teach tolerance as a minimum but inspire people to engage. And this is where things get nebulous. You can mandate tolerance but you have to inspire engagement. Mm. Who inspired you to be interested in different people? Do you remember or can, can you identify a point?
1: Mm, not specifically, no.
0: No, but it clearly happened because mm. every time we talk, I'm aware how interested you are in other people and in people who see and do different things. Mm. But somewhere, something triggered that and someone reinforced it. Well, mm. not just probably someone, multiple someone. Mm. So this is another thing. To be genuinely meritocratic is not a strictly technical question. It's a social and emotional question. What kind of society do I want to be in? And how am I going to engage with other people to get the kind of society I want to be in? So the terrible thing is we need to use tolerance to mandate better situations, probably in multiple places in the world. But at some point you want to transition from being tolerant of difference to inspiring people to engage with difference when you get to the point that society is different enough and people are starting to embrace difference. You know, I always make the joke that the thing that gets multiculturalism beginning to work is takeaway menus.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> you
0: know, if you can have 11 takeaway menus taped to your fridge or made to your fridge, you're on the path to multiculturalism and to genuinely embracing difference, not tolerating it.
1: Food definitely brings us together. Precisely. For
0: sure. mm. Once you work out that you can go with your friends to try food you know nothing about and chat to the people in the restaurant who can tell you what you're about to eat and why it's significant, mm. why it's their favorite dish, that's not tolerance, that's engaging with difference. Mm. Mm. And I don't think because food is so central to being human, food is so central to being social. As much as it sounds trivial to make my joke about 11 takeaway menus Mm -hmm. i am going to make it until the end of time because i think it is the first important step of going from tolerance of difference to embracing it
1: it's true like it's funny i think because it's true yeah
0: and even if it's not about multiculturalism but just getting to know new people what's the best terms to get to know new people under eating food Mm. because until you feel confident about talking about the differences and the different perspectives around the table. Let's talk about what we think of the food.
1: Mm. Let's th- get
0: to know each other over something neutral.
1: I think that rings true especially in Australia. I don't necessarily want to bring up too many examples because I'm not necessarily well read in the area. But yeah. how look how we've embraced, say, Vietnamese food. Precise. And you know, that's a, a conversation that we were having over twenty years ago. Yeah. Now and that's and it's like we've moved on to the next Yeah. Like the next at the thing. moment
0: we we're getting yeah, Afghan kebab places popping mm. up. Awesome. We're beginning to see a few more African places pop up. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. You know, I, I've got my three favorite Afghan places. I'm really <laughs> unimpressed if I can't get grilled meat.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm, and baklava. And, yeah. yeah. Mm. I, I've not yet worked out what my favorite Sudanese thing is because I don't have enough experience yet. Yeah. You know, come on, Sudanese listeners, let us know where we should be eating Sudanese because <laughs> this is going to be the first step to being more than tolerant Mm. of difference. And in a meritocratic society, we can have technical meritocracy to make sure that we have competence in technical skills. Mm. But meritocracy needs to be more than that. At the social end of this spectrum, at the genuinely valuing diversity end of this spectrum, or this triangle if we're going to call it a triangle, we need to be inspired to engage because we genuinely believe every time we move a bit more to the midpoint on this triangle. Mm. that The end point is things are done well, things are done in an engaged way and things are done in a way where we meet different people who make us go, wow, life in this society is good because it's not the same every day. Mm. But even that brings up the question of how much do people want sameness, how much do they want novelty? Mm. the more people feel threatened by the complexity of the world and the hardship of the world the more they probably want sameness but if you can be open to novelty you get more joy in your day if there's more joy in your day you're more open to deal with change and difference and
1: hardship that brings up a, a thought for me which is I've always heard you know we talk about diversity usually diversity in the work sphere talks about racial differences i mean that's usually the context that we think about diversity in. so in in that case we're talking about people who were all human i mean regardless of what identifier we want to use um and we're talking about differences in ideas yet we don't want to treat other people differently so i'm seeing like a slight dichotomy in yeah how we're saying that people are different but we can't treat them differently
0: well we have to acknowledge people are different Mm. and acknowledge that we will make sure they have equal rights Mm. and equal opportunity Mm. but also that they're all different Mm. so it's about holding yourself to the moral bar of equal rights and equal opportunity but accepting that doesn't mean equal outcome
1: Mm.
0: again we might you know go try you know, some cultures food one lunchtime after doing a podcast and both hate it <laughs> and never go back again. Now, is that a slight on that culture? No. Mm. But we're not going to eat there again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, my wife share housed in Canberra, you know, with a, a young lady from Hong Kong who used to make pickled eel porridge. Oh. It was the most disgusting smell I have ever smelled. <laughs> You know, you're happily asleep at 8 a.m. on a Sunday morning, and then the smell of pickled eel uh, porridge waft, wafts, yeah. wafts under the bedroom door. <laughs> and you think, I didn't know I wanted to chuck. What a way to start my day.
1: Don't now, think I got drunk last night. I didn't, don't feel hungover. That's no, yeah. it. The smell is so bad.
0: But again, do I want to embrace pickled eel porridge? No. Does it diminish the fact that she was a nice person? No. Mm. She just cooked horrible food. <laughs> So this is this thing that we we have to accept that dichotomy is a part of life. Mm. Humans are tribal, mm. but if our tribe is too small and too similar, we miss out on too many good things. So we need to accept we're tribal, accept that that is a limitation that humans have, that we will want to fall back on the known, the people we trust, particularly when times are hard. But if we stop moving towards and valuing novelty and difference, we're giving up the ability to grow. So everything about being human, it seems to me, is probably a dichotomy. Mm. That There is always, and again, this is why I'm always going to try and draw, whether it be a spectrum or a triangle, and go, here are the extremes, don't go there. Yeah. Don't be totally tribal, but also don't be so lost in the new that you don't know who you are. So you know, cosmopolitanism, for an example, suggests that we can all be whoever we want to be in a world where we do whatever we want. How would you know who you are? How would you know who your tribe is? Mm. Do I want us to be reasonably cosmopolitan? Yes. But total cosmopolitanism suggests the loss of identity within groups that we value. It's a total thing of being an individual in a world of individuals. And I actually think as a thought experiment it's very interesting, but I don't think humans are very well equipped for it. We like to know there's people around us who we like Mm. and who like us because we like them. There's no point hiding That reality that fundamentally, even in the modern world of individualism, that we are still fundamentally tribal. Our tribe might be more diverse, stranger, multicolored, multidisciplined, multiprofessioned, come from different continents and do different jobs. But still, the tribe of people we love and want to spend time with. That's great to love your tribe, but are you open to making your tribe bigger and your tribe becoming gradually different? That's the dichotomy that... If you're really a thoughtful person, I think should be the aim. How do you be in the middle of loving what you are but being open to being more? Mm. The, The dichotomy, though slightly uncomfortable, is also the proof that you're heading in a good direction. Meritocracy, great idea, but it's got to be balanced with society. That is never going to be comfortable. It's always a bit like putting a bit of grit in the shellfish and getting a pearl. The pearl started off as grit. You know, the grit was annoying. Mm. Trying to work out, well, how much more open to the world do I want to be? Well, that can be annoying. But so can having a small world and missing out. Both things need to be annoying. Mm. Life needs to be the grit, and the consequence of the grit needs to be making the pearl. How am I going to do the best I can meritocratically, but how am I also going to understand that at a certain point it's not just about my competence, it's about my ability to fit the team that potentially... I want to join. Do they want me to join them? Sometimes we don't get you know, the opportunity to join the teams we want. But what we should do is you know, be engaged enough to make sure our society doesn't exclude too many people for silly reasons. Like I don't want a world that excludes people for being blind. Mm. I don't want a world that excludes people for being black. Mm. I want a world that says, hey, that person is meritocratically competent. Socially, they've got an understanding of all the rules to fit. Well, if they're being discriminated against, I want us to use our moral bar and go, that's not good enough. Dig the grid in a bit deeper and make a pearl. Mm. Do a bit better than we're doing. But this means that we've never got a comfortable midpoint. We never go, ah, we're there. (laughs) And I think this is something we're probably going to have to do a podcast on, and I don't know what to call it, but the idea that you can coast. I hate the idea that people think they can coast. Because the minute you think you can coast, you've stopped making the world a better place. You've undervalued what you are, and gradually, by not moving forward, you will suffer entropy.
1: There's an interesting conversation to be had there because I've been recently reading and listening to a lot of Alan Watts. Yeah, and he talks about the idea that that you shouldn't aim to improve yourself, or that there isn't any point in doing so because the idea is fundamentally flawed that the person that is doing the improving needs to be improved because if you're improving yourself then yeah you're fundamentally flawed now that for me identifies that people should be okay with stagnancy
0: yeah again look at any stagnant society Mm. stagnant societies go under Mm. when the Romans became stagnant they went under when they stopped imagining the new doing the different. And again, this is not to say you want to go out and be a violent empire and take over half the world. <laughs> but while they were doing that, they are also doing amazing science, bringing law to the world, bringing order, making sure that trade worked. Mm. They were busy doing. Again, we'll get into this, but there's an interesting argument by Richard Taylor, an American philosopher, that passivity is the path to decline and at an individual level, uh, mental illness. Mm. And I would argue being a disabled person who's been around other disabled people that the more active I've seen disabled people be in who do I want to be how do I want to be in the world the better their mental health the more the disability overwhelms their ability to find a place find value find meaning find connection the more that passivity does them harm and passivity is not the same as being stagnant but they're they're similar.
1: Mm. Perhaps this is a reason why the retiring age going up is a good thing. It prevents stagnancy a little bit near the end.
0: I think this idea of retiring and doing nothing doesn't seem to be good for most it's, it's people. It's not a plan. But you know, it, it's also a case that we're in a period of human history where people's idea of an awesome Saturday is to watch eight hours of Netflix. Mm. It's passive absorption of something else someone made. Read a book. At least you have to imagine what the words mean. Watch a screen and someone's feeding you their version of the world. So how is it that we're in a period where we've got the fixation on passive entertainment Mm -hmm. and we've also got massive social dislocation, alienation and a mental health crisis?
1: And that's something that's come up a few times in what we've discussed.
0: So I think we're going to have to do an episode on passivity and stagnation and what they mean and – Maybe it all ends a bit controversial. But again, all we can do is argue the logic from start to finish. Mm. But again, in a meritocratic society, to come back to where we started, we'd have to say, if you want to be passive, a meritocratic society shouldn't stop you. Mm. And I would never want to stop someone from being passive. I would still want them to have equal rights and equal opportunity and I would want to make sure they don't fall below a point of doing okay
1: Mm.
0: Yeah, that economically, socially, they're doing all right. Politically, they're still represented. Yeah, you know, people have the right to be themselves and to do as little as they can get away with if it <laughs> makes them happy. <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: but I, I'm going to maintain my right in a society where we can think about things and then talk about them. To go, I'm worried about people who are too passive. That that level of meritocracy lets me go on and try and do them try and be passive. But this is going to lead to very, very different endpoints, I think.
1: So I think that is where the bitterness comes from, from the meritocracy. It's the passive. It's the people who want to be passive and then feel that they've had an unfair lot when the people that are assertive, let's not say aggressive, leap ahead.
0: We could even talk about this in terms of relative deprivation. Mm. Ted Robert Gurr's idea that you both expect that things should get better. Mm-hmm. But if you can't make things better, you also have the expectation that things shouldn't get worse. Mm. So if your expectations they should get better are dashed, that's annoying, but as long as they don't get worse, at least you haven't lost ground. Mm. But if they don't get better and then they actually get worse, that's when people truly get angry or sad. Mm. And passivity is potentially a path that leads to things not getting better, but with passivity, also things are very likely to get worse, because other people are going to take advantage of <laughs> those resources. They're not being used. Yeah, I will make use of them, and it's not ha ha, I'm stealing this stuff from this passive person. No, it's just active people. Dynamism makes stuff move.
1: Is is the, is it a zero sum game then?
0: I think this is why we need to accept the dichotomy because we want to stop it become zero sum. Mm. You know, in a world of finite resources, increasing population, there is a terrible sense that it, it could turn into zero sum if we don't do something about it. That you know, in a world where there's more people and less stuff, mm. that eventually we will have to take something from someone else to achieve the things we value.
1: So, should just maybe perhaps to explain a zero-sum game. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Yeah. A zero-sum game is where both of us can't win. Tim and I both can't win. Mm. One of us would have to take an opportunity or a resource away from the other. Yeah. Um, and we've we've talked about this before that you know I'm advocating for as whenever possible plus some games. Mm. How can we imagine a future where we don't have to have the same win, but we both have to feel that the path forward is beneficial to both of us. Mm and that with limited resources, and this is the thing with meritocracy. To say in meritocracy that I want to work hard, you want to work hard, that's fine, we should be able to to go forward in a meritocratic world. But because it's about balancing society and society's need, we also have to have a society that says, yeah, you guys can move forward, but you can't do harm to these people over here because part of balancing these things is saying they have equal rights and equal opportunity. And part of equal opportunity is to not be diminished below an acceptable point, that we can't do harm to people to win. And I don't know, I guess there'd be a lot of people that would argue with us and go, oh, look, people who don't put in effort deserve what they get. Well, no. They deserve more than that because we've decided, you know, for over a hundred years now in Australia, that society is more than I win, you lose. Hmm. We've decided you can win, but that person has to have a basic standard of existence.
1: Where does like the situation that you're born into fit into that? Because I think that's the thing that people are most concerned with. So for instance, I know that in America, there's a real problem with being born into like a mostly African-American community is a more disadvantaged community because then there's a genetic problem as well of like IQ, let's say. So. Yeah,
0: but the interesting thing... Okay, let, let's get the genetic one out of the way. <laughs> okay. You know, US Army has 100 years of data that shows if you've got an IQ under 85, you're a danger to yourself and others and you have <laughs> no role in the military. Mm. Now, the great thing about their 100 years of data is it shows it doesn't matter what population in America they look at. Mm. Black, white, Latino there's always a proportion of people with less than 85 as an IQ. So what it says is there's no link between race and IQ. Okay, that's that, good. That yeah. IQ is simply in all humans there are a proportion with an IQ less than 85. Yes. Who don't fit in the normal range and are in danger in the military to themselves and everyone else.
1: So it's not necessarily think something that's been passed down from generation to generation.
0: It just seems to periodically, randomly turn up. Right, right. Um, that that's what the evidence suggests, and it always will. In the same way that randomly people pop up with very high IQ, mm. and again, this is not a perfect measure. Now, now let's jump from you know nature into nature. nurture. Mm. There's a whole argument out there now, but yeah, you know, it's the argument that's growing that it's not nature or nurture; mm. it's nature via nurture.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: and the classic example of this is a gene called MAOA. All males have MAOA, Mm -hmm. and I think it's about a third of males have a damaged version of MAOA. Whoa. Now, if you have a damaged version of MAOA and you have a lovely childhood and a lovely family and grow up in a healthy, safe society, Mm -hmm. you're highly unlikely to be violent and end up in jail. Mm -hmm. If you have a damaged version of MAOA and have a terrible childhood, physical sexual abuse grow up in a violent society, you are likely to end up incredibly violent and spend most of your life in jail. Mm. And the amazing proof of this is in New Zealand a test in Dunedin where they've now been testing the same thousand people for over forty years. Wow. So they were able to test which of the males have the damaged MAOA and see that the ones who had horrific childhoods are all in jail violent criminals. Far out. And the ones that have damaged MAOA and had lovely childhoods are fine, mm. despite the gene. And what it proves is that immaterial of your genetics, nurture will determine whether the genes express or do not express. Mm. So at a genetic level, you can have a predisposition for something, but nurture will determine whether the predisposition comes into you know preeminence or not. Mm. So in terms of meritocracy, you can have better or worse genes. Yes, that's true. But the experiences you have through nurture will determine what your genes do. Mm. And the better your nurture is, the more likely you are to do well. Mm. So we get back to the thing that in a good society, we would never discriminate against anyone for their genes. We would increase the quality of their life experiences from birth you know, to young adulthood to make sure they have the best chance to do well. You know, that part of the dichotomy is going, you know, we can't change whether you're born to money or born to poverty. Mm. But we can make sure that even a basic education is good enough to set you up for a reasonable chance of success. Yeah. And this is the thing of saying what kind of society do we want to live in? We don't live in Hobbes or Rousseau's nasty nature. Well, Hobbes had a nasty nature. Rousseau had a warm, fuzzy nature. We walked around the forest, ate acorns, and went to sleep under a tree. Occasionally, he ran into someone who looked hot, had sex, and made a kid. And then concluded, hey, that was kind of fun. And I'm kind of fond of this little bugger we made. How about we stick together and become a family? Mm. Oh, okay. Yeah. Rousseau was weird. His ideas were entertaining, but they're weird. <laughs> you know, nature just by you know, dumb accident. So you know, we certainly don't have Hobbes' evil world. Mm. But neither do we have Rousseau's sort of dumb luck world. Mm. What we have is humans look after each other or don't and there's consequences of of looking after each other or not. If we make the decision to look after the people we know but also to look after the people we don't, if we sort of have Benedict Anderson's idea of the imagined community, that you you and I didn't know each other nine months ago but we can talk about society and understand it in a similar way. We can imagine what our society should be like even though we didn't know each other. We can imagine what a good society should be in a way through shared experience of politics, literature, how our society functions and go, we don't have to agree on the details, but we can agree on the sense of what a better society is and that we'd rather that than a bad one. Mm. So part of dealing with meritocracy is going, if it's going to work, It's got to be within a society that wants a better society for everyone because only in that better society will we let people achieve what they can but also protect people who are not sure what they want to do and also protect people who maybe don't have the ability to make decisions for themselves. And part of the way we judge how good a society we are is what do we do for the people who are at the bottom? Yeah. John Rawls's Veil of Ignorance, design a society where you don't know who you're going to be in it. You don't know if you're going to be the most powerful person or the weakest person. What kind of society do you want to build? Now, I want a meritocratic society, so if I'm at the bottom, I can do better. Mm. But I also want a society that if I'm at the bottom and I can't do well, doesn't let me disappear. So either way, I want a society that values my meritocracy, but looks after me if I'm not highly capable. Because surely, if in a society we're making use of people's talent, that means we will create excess value that we can invest in making it a nice place for everyone.
1: Yeah. Yep. There's enough. Yeah. Value. Yeah. There's enough value production that it it can. And this is not just economic value; it's political value, social value. It's
0: everything value. And again. Audience, are you screaming, utopian, utopian idealist? (laughs) I'm there, yes. And I'm not going to argue we can get this utopia to look perfect. But if we don't have an ideal to aim for, how are we going to make things work well?
1: It completely fits, like it's a function that we can fit into our society now. There's nothing preventing, like there's not a radical change.
0: We're doing a reasonably good job of all this now. Do I still want us to do better? Absolutely. Do I want us to be more, you know, meritocratic than social network? Yes. Mm. Can we die, deny the social network? No. No. Do we want our society to still do right by people who, you know, don't have the skill set to thrive? Yes. Because I want to know that if I meet someone who isn't sure what to do next, that they're not forced into sort of the alienated position. Of hating you and I in our society and seeing us as the enemy. Because if you make an underclass, you will eventually make an enemy whose only choice is to lash out. Mm. So, you know, part of goodwill to everyone is to make sure you get goodwill from most people. Mm. You know, goodwill tends to make circles of goodwill, exclusion makes people who throw Molotov cocktails and bricks. <laughs> I'd rather avoid that. You know, France, the last few weeks, the strikes, the petrol protests against the cost of fuel, against the cost of life in France. Mm. Yeah, you know, They've been ripping up the paving stones in major old roads and throwing them at the riot police. Mm. The riot police have been going in with water cannon. Mm. Now, the French love a good revolution. <laughs> we, we can laugh about this. But it's also true. Yeah, When society's not doing good enough, they get angry and they go and throw a brick and get capsicum sprayed. It's a big day in Paris. Now, I don't want us to get to that point. If we can use value to empower those that want to do something and look after those that either can't or don't know what to do next, yes, that costs, but the benefits
1: for spending that money early, spending that value early, seem to me to be worth it. Well, that's something that we're going to talk about another time. I think we're going to talk about having an ideal society Mm. and you want to talk about passivity um, and I think there is also room for justice in what we've talked about a little bit there golly that could be (laughs)
0: multi-podcast
1: well we'll have to leave it there because otherwise we'll mind boggle our listeners a little bit and i'm feeling a little bit tired so i'm on my second coffee and even i'm pooped (laughs) thank you for coming in today david thank you tim